to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. The last full year of the Civil War featured a variety of dramatic events, from Grant's overland campaign in Virginia to Sherman's march to the sea and Abraham Lincoln's potentially decisive electoral campaign for re-election to the presidency. Along with these well-known events, other things were transpiring. Mosby's Rangers in Virginia fighting in the Shenandoah Valley, the efforts of Clara Barton to alleviate the vast suffering, and many others. All of these are detailed in a new book from S.C. Gwynn, Hymns of the Republic, the story of the final year of the American Civil War. We'll talk with the author tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, but not speaking for the Brewster Building or its decaying stairwells that are being replaced over the next several weeks. I just learned from the engineering department here at ECU, not speaking for the engineering department or anybody, just for myself. And likewise, tonight's guest will speak only for himself. That's how we do it here. The uh, past week saw all kinds of interesting sports events, none of which I care to discuss this evening uh, as my teams didn't do so well. 
But I will talk instead, uh, I do want to share with you briefly an event on campus today here uh, in Greenville, North Carolina at, at ECU, which was, uh, which I found very inspiring and, and helped, uh, helped me feel uh, that in, in some ways ECU is uh, like a real university. Uh, what specifically happened was I attended a ceremony on the medical campus on the other side of town, away from we're here on the, the main uh, campus where the, uh, most of the undergraduate courses are. But at, over at the med school in the hospital, uh, there was a ceremony to dedicate a, a piece of sculpture uh, executed by uh, Jens Zorn of Ann Arbor, Michigan. And the reason I was attending the ceremony was that the, one of the speakers was the artist's son, Eric Zorn, uh, Jens himself is, is 88 years old and was unable to come down from Ann Arbor to Greenville. But uh, Jens Zorn is a noted sculptor who was for many years a physics professor at University of Michigan and in his retirement uh, took up using some of the machines in the physics lab essentially to create art. And he has since, uh, he has a number of pieces installed on the U of M campus, but he also has received commissions from MIT, uh, from Stanford, uh, University of Nevada, and other places, and now a commission from East Carolina University. So it's good to be in the same sentence with uh, MIT and uh, Stanford and, and Michigan here at ECU. And it was a great honor to attend the ceremony. Uh, the artist's son, Eric, who spoke also uh, is my college roommate and longtime friend and uh, fiddle playing companion. So last night he and I got to mash down and play play fiddle tunes for a couple hours, including the one you hear at the beginning of this show and the one you hear during the breaks and uh, oh, dozens and dozens more. The number was very large. I'm sure my wife would say it was even larger, but we had a good time doing that and then uh, it, it was great to attend the ceremony today and hear how the medical faculty responded to this piece, which is a, a metaphoric uh, portrayal of how different disciplines of chemotherapy and uh, surgery and, and medicine can all, radiation can all join together to improve care for cancer patients uh, here in eastern North Carolina. Uh, as, as Eric said when it was over, is it too late for us to go to med school? It, it was just such an inspiring moment. You really left feeling uh, that, that we're in good hands with such dedicated people. Uh, hopefully, we never need their services, but that was today's event here on campus. Uh, you can find out what events are happening here at Civil War Talk Radio by going to www.impedimentsofwar.org. Where Mark Gaffney tells us what's happening. There you can find out next week's guest will be Rich Condon, who is the, uh, I'm not sure what the word is, the webmaster perhaps for Civil War Pittsburgh, a brand new website that just went up, and also the Civil War Pittsburgh Facebook. Civil War Pittsburgh Facebook group. He is also a National Park Service ranger and will learn a lot about public history on the internet in terms of the Civil War in his neck of the woods next week. We'll follow that in November. We've got uh, three shows in November, no show Thanksgiving week, uh, no live show. But we'll hear from John Grady and his biography of Matthew Fontaine Maury, the Confederate uh, naval person. We'll talk with Philip Girard, 
author of The Last Battleground, The Civil War Comes to North Carolina, and wrap up the month on November 20 with Donald L. Miller's new book, Vicksburg, Grant's Campaign That Broke the Confederacy. And we'll follow in December two more shows before the end of the semester, James Robbins' Jewel on the 1st Oregon Cavalry Regiment, a unit uh, I know nothing about at this point, and I cannot wait to read the book, and finish the semester with uh, Kevin M. Levin, Searching for Black Confederates, The Civil War's Most Persistent Myth. So lots of interesting stuff coming up. I hope you can join us for that. Uh, And hope you can join us for This Hallowed Ground, the tour of Civil War battlefield sites in May of 2020. Go to Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours website and learn about that. I'll look forward to meeting some of you there if you can sign up. Uh, I'll be leading two tours in May, uh, or maybe one's in June. Well, you can check the website uh, and hope to see you there. Tonight we're talking about the Civil War, the last year of the Civil War in particular, uh, which is the subject of a new book, Hymns of the Republic, the story of the final year of the American Civil War. Uh, Scribner is the publisher. The author is S.C. Gwynn, who joins us now. Uh, Mr. Gwynn, are you there? I'm here, Jerry. And Welcome. I'm, also, I'm also very happy to know who's playing that fiddle. Well, that, that's not me actually playing at the beginning oh. of the show. Um, it, it, uh, that is uh, uh, um, Unger, uh, Jay Unger. Who composed oh, okay. that tune, uh, Ashokan Farewell. Uh, he wrote that, and of course, Ken Burns adopted it as the theme yeah, of the Civil War I just War misunderstood, series. I guess, something you said in your, in your intro, but anyway. No, I... I it's great uh, fiddle playing either way. <laughs> it is it is a beautiful fiddle. I aspire to play like that. No, uh, <laughs> my friend Eric and I were playing our fiddles last night uh, at my house, and we would just take turns and say, oh, let's play this tune. Yeah, let's play that tune. And, oh, let's play that tune from the beginning of the show, Ashokan Farewell. So we played that. Oh, Our version okay. was not yeah. as good as what you heard. Lovely, <laughs> lovely, mournful, sentimental song. It is a wonderful song, that's for sure. So uh, you have written uh, other history books and uh, another book about the Civil War, but uh, tell us about your day job. What do you do when you're not writing uh about the Civil War? Well, I was, uh, so I've been a career journalist. I mean, most of what I've done uh, as, as an adult has been, a, I guess you would say a magazine writer or magazine editor. I, most of my career was with Time Magazine as ver- in various incarnations. I was also executive editor at Texas Monthly Magazine. Um, I had the good fortune, and I, I would wish this good fortune on all writers, but in um, 2010, I published a book essentially about the Comanche Indians called Empire of the Summer Moon. Uh, that became a bestseller. And I mean, I think we're at about 1.5 million copies now. So it was in that area where you, you no longer have a, a day gig or you, know, you don't have to work at a day gig anyway. So since then, really 2011, I've been a full-time uh, writer of history, um, which is just exactly what I would have wanted to do. So uh, that's my day gig is sitting at my desk or in libraries um, working on history. That, that is an enviable status to achieve. In, uh, one it is. I people. thought it was going to happen to me when I was 24, you know, like F. Scott Fitzgerald, but I was just a little late on that one. But uh, <laughs> Better than never, though. Yeah, um, that's right. So what uh, you wrote, you said about uh, Comanche Indians. What, what about your interest in the Civil War? Does that go back a long way? It How does. did that it originate? Goes, it does. And, you know, and I think I, I, think I came to the war... Uh, you know, the way so many other people 
did, perhaps, of my generation and even the generation before me, which was through Bruce Catton. Um, Bruce sold a lot of books, and he was a great writer, and he was a great popularizer of things. And uh, I, know, I, I think I was in my early 20s when I read, uh, I read this Hallowed Ground, and I read, uh, I guess, Stillness at Appomattox. Those, were the, you know, those are the logical first two mm-hmm. to read. Um, and, I, and ever since then, I was just a, a reader. You know, I was a, 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 a person who loved to read about the Civil War, and I would, you know, I would... I even tried to tackle people like Douglas Southall Freeman, uh, but, mm-hmm. um, and did tackle Douglas Southall Freeman. But uh, but I wasn't a writer about the war, and so what happened was going back to the success of Empire of the Summer Moon. Uh, you know, when that did well, I I was kind of in a moment where I I could sort of choose what I wanted to do next, uh, and and that's a window that opens. It doesn't always open for everybody, and may not. And I didn't know how long it was going to be open, or if it would ever would open again. But it did open, and uh, and so I sort of asked myself, what is it that I would really want to do? And the answer, my answer was, I would like to write a biography of Stonewall Jackson. So, so that's what I did. And um, and in that sense, I was a newbie. You know, I was a newbie, even though I was a reader, a consumer of the Civil War. I wasn't a researcher. I, I hadn't written books about it, and I hadn't. And so, in that sense, of the the ramp up to it was very, very difficult. You know, I mean, as you might imagine, you're trying to come up to speed in a way that it would enable me to write a full scale biography. So, but uh, anyway, that was that was what it was. It was great, and it was such. I have to say, it was such. I, I did not know how brilliant the choice I was making was, at least for me. It was a brilliant choice for me because I was absolutely fascinated by that subject. I still am. It is, I, as a person, I, I cannot imagine a more interesting and compelling person to write about. So it was a good choice from my point of view. So now a lot of people have written about Stonewall Jackson. The, this next question applies, I guess, both to that, but also the current book, um, Last week on the show, I had an author who wrote uh, a book on the war in North Carolina from January to May 1864. And I said to him, you know, there's two questions to start with. One is, why another book on Gettysburg? Or in his case, why any book at all on something no one's ever heard of? Well, the last year of the war, everyone's heard of. We're Stonewall Jackson. So I'll ask you the other form of the question. Why another book on the last year of the war. We've got John Waugh, Jay Winnick, Bruce Catton. Uh, what, 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 yeah, what really do we get here? Not, not a whole, I mean, if you, if you, I mean, let's go back to the Catton Pulitzer Prize winner, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Stillness at Appomattox. I mean, that was about the last year of the war seen from the point of view of the Army of the Potomac. And so right. we, we don't get to Sherman. We, we, there's a lot that we don't really get to in that book because it is focused on that. But since then, if you, if you just look at that year, there have been some Grant Lee, Grant V. Lee books, but just looking at the Winnick book doesn't do it, and the if you and the Wall book doesn't do it, not the year of the war. I mean, I was surprised. When I looked at it, I thought there was going to be 175 of these things. There aren't. Uh, but, and, and my book is different, at least in, in, um, in, its, uh, in, in its scope from Catton's, because I go well beyond, you know, the, uh, the Army of the Potomac and... and uh, um, so actually, it wasn't. It, it isn't. I mean, compared to, for example, my biography of Stonewall Jackson, or if I were writing about Gettysburg or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting. It's one of the first questions I'm realizing as I get into this that you know, you, one of the first questions people ask you is, I mean, oh really? Oh come on, really? Another book about the Civil War? Do we really need that? It, it, it's a legitimate question. It, it, it's an 
it, it's something that, and it's something that we all have to answer. You know, mm-hmm. why? Why are you doing this? You know, we, there is, there is, to me, in Civil War writing, there is so much of what I would call the same old crap that gets delivered year after year, and I can go to the library and just take you and you do, you know this too. You take out volumes, and it's just, and I'm going back to you know the late 19th century on this now, just kind of the same old crap being recycled over and over again. And I would say a couple of things. One, I think that. You know, even though it's a cliche to say so, I mean, each generation of history is going to rewrite history. So when we could have gotten to 1960 and said, you know, God, there's just libraries full of the Civil War. What do we really need anymore? So therefore, we wouldn't re- need, you know, Gene Smith's biography of Grant or we wouldn't need, uh, uh, you know, uh, James McPherson. We don't, why would we need him? I and mean, we've already done that, you know, when why would we need Eric Foner? I mean, right? I mean, you, 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 you can see how each generation can improve it. Um, mm. so, so I think there's a bit of that. And, 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 when, and you can answer the question generally like that. But more specifically, and I don't want to sound too arrogant or vainglorious here, but I, I do think I'm offering a fresh take on the war. I think that I, I really hope when readers read about the usual suspects, Sherman, you know, Grant Lee, people like that, that they don't think they're just reading the same, I, my phrase, the same old crap. I don't think it is. I've tried very hard to make it not that. And, and I would, I, you know, I will let readers judge. They can judge mm-hmm. and they can call me up and say, Sam, you know, actually that's the same old crap. I don't <laughs> think it is. Um, and I, and I, and really Jerry, I wouldn't, I would not write a book. I don't think my Jackson book was that, mm-hmm. but I, I, uh, I I wouldn't write a book if that's what I thought I was doing. Um, so I really do think Sam, I can offer something, and that's the short and long of it. But. Okay. Well, that, that certainly <laughs> answers that. Let me step in. We're going to take a short break and okay. come back in just a minute. We're going to talk more with our guest tonight, Sam Gwynn, author of Hymns of the Republic, the story of the final year of the American Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you? It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific. Pacific for Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is on Instagram. Make sure you follow us and comment on our pictures from behind the scenes at our radio shows, live events, and around the network. We want to see what you have to share as well. Check us out on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with the author S.C. Gwynn about his book, Hymns of the Republic, the story of the final year of the American Civil War. Uh, Sam, we were talking, uh, well, let me say about this book that it is, uh, as befits your uh, career as a writer, it's extremely well written, it's very easy to read. Uh, the, the organization is into discrete chapters that are digestible and focused and, and, and tackle one uh, subject or vignette after another. Out of all those chapters, which would you say would is the most important if, if a reader could only, for some reason, could only read one or two or maybe three? Which are the key? Now, that's an interesting question. Uh, there were two, there were some, you know, there were so many big events that year. The election of 1864 was, of course, very important. Um, the To me, the person that emerged, and, and to my surprise in some way, because I wasn't really expecting to spend that much time on him, as the poster boy of of the book was uh, was Sherman. Um, and, and for this reason, uh, one of the th- reasons I wrote this book is I had written about Jackson, which really covered the first two years of the war to his death at Chancellorsville in May of 1863. When I started to research the last year of the war, one thing that were the thing that struck me the most was how just absolutely bitter and desperate and brutal and vengeful and just, I mean, add your adjectives. It was just a, a quantum difference from what almost seemed, and it's always hard to say, you know, that like, there's anything innocent about war, but the first two years seemed very much more like a bandbox war to me, you know, compared to this last year. And so that the person who emerged there, I mean, to, to me, in my mind anyway, as the emblem of that was Sherman. I mean, because what happens is you have this kind of weird Lee paradox, I call it the Lee paradox, is the South doesn't lose. And the longer that goes on, the more these things get unleashed. And so you have the anti-civilian warfare of Sherman and Sheridan gets unleashed. And, you know, the prison camps get unleashed, 180,000 black soldiers in the Union Army, and uh, just uh, guerrilla wars on a level we have not seen before. And all of this somehow, uh, to me, Sherman becomes the most emblematic of the hard and desperate war. He also, though, because he's such a weird guy, he's the he's like the only person in the North who really just feels this manic and compulsive need to explain to every single person in the world, from little old blue-haired old ladies to the mayor of Atlanta to, you know, Salmon P. Chase and Jefferson, whoever might ask, 
why the war, why he's doing what he's doing, what is happening to the South in the war. He's this great moralizer, explainer, ideologue of the harsh war at the end of the year. And he emerges this way to me. I mean, as I point out in my book, I and I'm sure some of your listeners will disagree with this, but I think you can objectively prove it. He was a lousy field general. He just wasn't very good. His Civil War record was not good at all. And uh, even the things where he got credit, you know, he got credit at Chattanooga, Beg Grant, because Grant essentially lied. He, he was miserable at Chattanooga. Anyway, but what I argue is that I believe he may have been the single most brilliant man in the war but not for the reasons that Stonewall Jackson was. He wasn't a battle fighter. He wasn't that good at that. He was good at all of these other things. Anyway, so there's one chapter in there, I guess, it's Uncle Billy's Book of Moments. If I had to say, there's actually a couple of twinned uh, Sherman chapters. But if I said, if you were going to try to get the heart and soul of the book, you know, that, that idea, that notion of what happened. And, uh, and, of course, Sherman explaining this, you know, is the reason he's... <laughs> hated to this day in the South, and, and lo- the, the North loved his explanations, and the South hated them. That's a long-winded explanation. but <laughs> No, it, it's a very, very good uh, you know, response. It, it, it's you know, part of the, the uh, question when you are writing a long narrative is uh, how to maintain a focus, how to have an analytical uh, angle to it. Uh, and, and throughout the book, uh, the, the tone with which you describe people, including Sherman, uh, well, I, I say you, you're not shy with your judgments. Um, uh, I try to, I try to come to conclusions, yeah, and not mm-hmm. just in my own humble way. Yes, the the only character who doesn't come in for uh, uh, negative adjectives at some point, uh, mm-hmm. even Sherman, who you point out is brilliant. Uh, you, you argue his battlefield leadership is lacking. The only person in my reading that I can see who never uh, uh, draws that kind of fire is Clara Barton. Yes. Could you talk about her? Yeah. And, and by the way, I'm not, I, I try to be, I'm, as a journalist by background, I really do try to be balanced and objective. And I, I don't, I, I, if something bad happened about somebody, I, I say it because it happened. And I mean, anyway, that's the way I, I try to approach things. But Clara mm-hmm. Barton, who herself has is, is is flawed in certain ways, but perhaps not in the important ones. She kind of reinvented or invented this idea of battlefield medicine at a moment in time when the medical services being provided were really pretty abysmal. Um, I mean, they went from just ridiculously abysmal on the northern side, for example, at at, at uh, First Manassas or First Bull Run to sort of mildly catastrophic at. Uh, at say Chancellorsville, but um, you had this woman who kind of undertook first to supply um, northern troops. She was from Massachusetts, um, and and then to actually venture out, and she figured out all these different ways to venture out to get herself to the front. She really wanted to fight. She couldn't fight, but she she would. Uh, and I'll tell you one story. Instead of just going on and on, I'll tell you one story. I think that that kind of captures her. Mm-hmm. So she uh, uh, she knows that there's about to be a big battle up in you know Maryland, and she doesn't really know where it's going to be. But she's got her she's got a carriage just stuffed with medical supplies and four horses, and she's of course with a man because she couldn't go out there by herself. She recruits somebody, she gets some passes, and then she fudges the passes, and she heads up, and she ends up in the vicinity of Sharpsburg, and she's she 
what what and then she and then she ends up in the vicinity of the cornfield. So here you have the single bloodiest day in American history, Antietam, right? And you have the single bloodiest few hours of it, which is Cooker v. Jackson in the cornfield. And this is where this little five foot two inch uh, prim lady ends up literally at the edge of the cornfield where there is a field hospital. And of course, the casualties are just there. By the time she gets there, they've been overwhelmed. They're bandaging people with corn husks. I mean, and here she arrives suddenly with all of these great medical supplies that she has solicited money for and gathered in Washington and driven out there. So there she is. Meanwhile, there's bullets flying because they're right on the edge, literally on the edge of the cornfield. Bullets are flying. She's holding some guy in her hand, in her arms, and, and she feels a rustle at the edge of her dress, and this guy gets blown away by a piece of shrapnel. Um, at one point, she starts to become a surgeon. She's cutting, she cut, cuts a bullet out of somebody's face. Um, and then, and then, and then, having basically single-handedly serviced a, a a field, a full field hospital treating fifteen hundred men, darkness falls, and um, and uh, the surgeons would normally not be able to operate because they didn't have any light. She, of course, had brought lanterns, and so they were able to do that. But it was just this absolutely extraordinary piece of bravery, and. And in the middle of the battle, she was being obeyed as though as though she were an officer. She was so efficient and so compassionate. And uh, anyway, that that's that's kind of who Clara Barton was. I work her into the battle of, uh, well, the first the the openers of the Overland campaign, Wilderness and Spotsylvania, mm-hmm. which I argue is the, the the worst medical disaster of the Civil War, and she works into that too. So let me ask about your your. Research and writing process, you started touching on that uh, in our first segment, uh, having the uh, opportunity to have writing as a full-time occupation. Uh, so what, how do you go about researching uh, and then writing a book like this? Well, it's, um, there's a lot of research. I, I'd say the, the, the research to writing is probably 60, 40, something like that. That's probably about what it is. And, and there's just a, and, and it's very, at least with the Civil War, because the Civil War is such a harsh mistress. It is so demanding in terms of amount that you have to read, and uh, I've never encountered anything like it. And it's it's just it's very it's daunting. But you have to spend. I mean, I spent a, a year just reading. Um, I mean, I'd spent three or four, four probably four years on the Stonewall Jackson book with all of that kind of stuff, and and I I did go to a number of archives and libraries for that, and of course you. Tour. I tour every single place I can possibly tour, and multiple times, usually battlefields and areas and things that I'm writing about. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's so. So in this case, it would be about a year of reading, and then and then kind of getting down to the brass tacks. Okay, here's a chapter on Claire Bart. Now I have to say, how am I going to research this? And the way I do it is because I'm a journalist. I guess I I don't. I have a friend, I have some friends who, they will research things for years and then sit down at their computer with a blank screen and pull out their first card and start typing. I can't do that. I'm too far from the material. So when I'm writing about Claire Barton, for example, um, I'm going to research that chapter. I will have done some preliminary reading, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to research that chapter be, and then write it and then research the next chapter and then write it and then kind of make my way uh, through the book like that. Um, my sources are, uh, as you might imagine, the Civil War, you, 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 you're always using secondary sources. I mean, you have to see what, you have to read Douglas Southall Freeman and Alan Nevins and 
James McPherson. I mean, you can't not read those people and, mm-hmm. and, get, and get away with anything <laughs> anyway in the world. Uh, uh, but also just, you know, secondary sources like, uh, you know, uh, uh, Sears Battle Book or something. I mean, those, those are uh, – or Gordon Ray, for example, on the Overland campaign. You absolutely must that's, – that's what – everything you do has got to be positioned around Ray, right? Gordon Ray because he's the man. And and that is one of the really difficult things about what I'm doing is you, okay, there's Gordon Ray, he's the man. Now he's written it at, you know, 40 times the length that I'm, I'm doing, but you've got to somehow read that and come up with something original. It, it, it's a very difficult thing to do because, no, I mean, I know nobody just wants to hear me parrot Ray or, or, or whoever the, the particular authority in the field is. So, anyway, but for me, the, the, the most important research uh, is, is always the really any documents where the, the, the person himself, in this case, say Sherman or Lincoln or Grant or anybody else, is talking or contemporaries talking about them. But I mean, the, the contemporaneous research, those are the things that mean something to me. They're, those are the conclusions that I draw. I mean, Clara Barton's diaries are wonderful. It all, all of my takes on her come out of those diaries. So um, it's, anyway, it's a complex process, but. You know, well, the, well the, in, in terms of research, Ed, you know, as you mentioned, the, the, you use a lot of published primary sources, memoirs of people like Sherman, Sheridan, Grant, Lincoln's right. writings, and so on, and those are indispensable. Um, you know, for uh, this, un- unlike the Jackson book, this one does not have, have archival research. Um, is that a conscious decision that this is just too big uh, a topic to to do that kind of original yeah, research? That, yeah, what happens there is then 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 what you're going to be tempted to do is 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 you know write 190 pages on this one great battle that you found. I mean, you can't the the, the key the whole key here is how deep do you go. And on a book like this, I, I deliberately did not want to go deep. I didn't want to get way down in the weeds of Spotsylvania. It's really easy to get, I mean, way down in the weeds. I'm just going to get those regimental histories out in front of me, right? And we're going to go way down. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, we, that, that is not the book I wanted to write. And I don't, that is not to disrespect books like that. I love books like that and I use them. But in this particular case, because it was a year and because I had to sweep through a lot of history, and because, you know, frankly, it, be, it would have been really easy to write this book at, you know, 1,500 pages. I would have done that without breaking a sweat. You just dump the data, right? Just just dump the data. There's a lot of data. There's infinite amounts of data. I mean, the trick here was to write a kind of crisp narrative that moved forward within a reasonable number of pages to cover a, you know, I mean, as you might imagine, the last year of the war, we're, we're talking about uh, a very large number of events that happen. So, so yeah, so that's the, the, those decisions are how deep do I want to go? It doesn't make sense for me to be lingering for months in archives as it would in a different project. I mean, as it would absolutely in a different project not, not in this one. Um, anyway, I guess that's my, my best, <laughs> my best answer. No, that's, um, I mean, on, on the show, I frequently talk with people about the differences between academic history and public history and popular history, and how you know each of them has their roles. That that uh, academic historians have, in the hopefully now distant past, been uh, skeptical of, of public history of people who work in museums and archives and battlefields, uh, and also will often not 
have especially high regard for popular history that is, as you say, aim you know that, that doesn't intend to go deep. That doesn't. That's right. not what it's intended to do. That's intended to tell a story that moves along briskly. That that tells a broad, sweeping story. Uh, that's you know, tal- in, written in a engaging and, and uh, accessible way, uh, which is what you're doing which here. I, so, which I think also defines the great academic historians that I know. I mean, <laughs> you just absolutely define for me James McPherson. That's exactly who he is to me. I mean, you know, I, it, it is. It, 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 I mean, academics who are really good do exactly what you just said too. Anyway, just. Well, no, it's those who can write well, yes, absolutely. Not all of them can, uh, and that's a reality that we face, and I will talk about authors, talk with authors about that as well, that that we will, there are some books that are on absolutely interesting, important topics, and very thoroughly researched in terms of original archival research, but the writing makes them mature. I I do, I read a new book every week for the, the, the show here, and some weeks it I find myself looking at the number of pages in my right hand and going, you know, really? Am I still not done? Uh, in other weeks, like this one, the, the pages fly by because it's written in a very uh, you know, accessible and engaging fashion. So there, there's you know, room in the Civil War library shelf for both kinds of history, it seems to me. Uh, and, yeah, and no, I totally agree. And, and for me, uh, it's, I mean, ideally, you, you, you want to, ideally, as a, a if you're writing the sort of history I am, you you want to write an engaging narrative, and you also you know you don't want to be laughed out of the academy. I mean, you want you you uh, you want to be given credit for for good research. Um, and I I I I certainly was on the Stonewall Jackson book. I hope I am on this book. But um, you want you want it both ways. <laughs> but well, it, it, but we would all like it both ways. It depth of a monograph in what I'm doing. I mean, you know, and and I personally love reading. You know, a good just old-fashioned 600-page monograph, but the reading public generally does not. We're going to take another short break, come back, talk more with Sam Gwynn, our guest tonight, author of Hymns of the Republic, the story of the final year of the American Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Looking for the best show about horse racing and handicapping? Want to play the ponies? Join us every week for Winning Ponies with John Englehart, racing's regular guy, where you'll go inside and behind the scenes with the top jockeys, trainers, agents, and handicappers in the world of horse racing. This show is the perfect complement to the Winning Ponies handicapping website. Listen for top plays for the weekend and the spot play of the week and win prizes just for calling in. Winning Ponies with John Englehart is live Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Sports Network. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with S.C. Gwynn. Sam is the author of Hymns of the Republic, the story of the final year of the American Civil War. We've been talking about the uh, the nature of this particular book and the role of popular history as we ended our last segment. Um, so, Sam, as I was reading this book, um, I'm sitting here in an office now with wall-to-wall, floor-to-ceiling bookshelves, many of them uh, uh, dedicated entirely to civil war. Uh, this is what I do for a living. I've done the show, a book a week for 15 years. Uh, so I don't mean any anything negative in the following comment, but I can say that after finishing this book, I, I didn't learn anything new in it. Um, there was nothing that that I haven't already read elsewhere. But not most people. Most people don't have a fifteen-year podcast or floor-to-ceiling Civil War books or do it teach Civil War for a living. Uh, so, who is the the ideal audience for this book? Oh, I think uh, I think it uh, it would not be limited to Civil War buffs. I mean, I don't. Uh, I don't know exactly what you mean when you, I mean, yes, I haven't uncovered a trove of, you know, grant letters that nobody had ever seen before. And I, and I think that those kinds of, you know, discoveries are kind of few and far between. They're pretty rare. I mean, yeah. you can always go micro and more micro and more micro. And then, of course, yes, we can get very original very quickly. But um, anyway, um, uh, uh, to answer your question, I think that I would hope that people who, who like to read about the Civil War would, would like the book. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, I would think it would be, uh, you know, my my Stonewall Jackson book was a bestseller and 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 it did very very well and has continued to do very very well and I think with a number of audiences, including a Civil War audience, and uh, and I would hope that this book uh, this book is less daunting for a reader than I mean a six hundred eighty page biography of a Confederate general is is a daunting thing for many people mm-hmm. to pick up if they're not in the field you know if they're not doing that. Uh, I think this is a 325-page book that is that is is more, I think, user-friendly. Um, so I, I would hope to, I would hope to get maybe more of the Catton crowd. You know, guys like me who originally read, picked this up and said, "What's this?" and read it and think, "Wow, the Civil War is such an interesting thing." And that happened in my life, you know, 40 years ago. But uh, uh, I would hope that I, I would, I would agree. get to get new- newbies. I guess people new to the new to it. I would hope that this. Uh, you know, I wrote a book a few years ago, again, about the Comanche's Empire of the Summer Moon that, that brought a lot of 
people into Western history. I mean, my book in a lot of ways is blood and guts Western history. A, a lot of people came to that who had never read it before. And I, I would I would like to think that we could draw some new people in. Uh, and uh, and it may be true that the that the super hardcores who are who, uh, like yourself who are looking for mm-hmm. you know something that they've never ever seen before um, um, maybe not them but we'll see we'll see what happens. Well, that no, I think that's that's exactly right, and that's what I was trying to get to is the idea that uh, you know different books have different audiences, and and there are uh, a lot of books on my shelf that nobody outside of a small circle of people would be interested in reading uh, that are not bestsellers. And this book, which is so you know, persuasively, you know, engagingly written, would be attractive to an audience of people who aren't, uh, you know, who, who haven't read, you know, 200 books about the Civil War already, uh, that, that this is a chance to bring people in. And there's an important need for books like that. And, and this seems to fulfill that. Uh, so I, I want to be clear, I'm not, not raising that as a negative point, but I think it's important to uh, you know, recognize that, that where the audience is, and I think there really is a, I'm sure there is an audience out there as you, you've been successful in the past, and I, I would expect this book will be as well. It's very attractive. I think a lot of it, I think a lot of it really is, it's, it's you know, if you look at some, like my, my favorite biography of Grant is Gene Edward Smith, I published mm-hmm. around 2000, 2002. I really don't think that there's anything in that book that the people like you didn't see before. It wasn't, mm-hmm. that wasn't what it was. He didn't say, oh, you know, I've got this letter, you know, the trove of letters from mm-hmm. Julia to Ulysses, uh, you know, that we've never seen mm-hmm. before. It wasn't that. It was the way Smith looked at it. And that was a different perspective. He looked at it differently, but using exactly the same facts, pretty much, that everybody else had. And so the Chernow biography that just came out was exactly the same way. And I would say that they're good biographies um, and that it's possible to be good without necessarily delivering new facts that nobody's ever heard before um, or delivering a character. And, and, and one of the things that you have to do, and there's no, I mean, you can't, if you're, say, writing about the Civil War, you can't you know, uh, you can't not write about Lincoln. I mean, is right. Lincoln the most written about person in American history? Yes. Can I not write about him? No. <laughs> Got to write about Lincoln. So trying to push into areas where uh, or, or places where an analysis would be perhaps not exactly what a reader was expecting. Uh, having written a book about Lincoln, I, I completely agree with what you just said. Uh, but, but, but your example, your example of uh, uh, Grant, I think, is really instructive because I again agree completely about the Smith biography, and especially the Chernow biography, that they don't break any new ground, uh, yeah. but they're extremely popular and sell a million copies. In contrast, uh, Charles Calhoun's recent book on the Grant presidency, not not a whole biography. Uh, is written entirely from archival sources. It's, I think, brilliant, and I learned a huge amount from it. But uh, sadly, Chuck Calhoun's book will sell a a tiny fraction of of Ron Chernow's book. And I shouldn't say sadly. I think it's good that Chernow's book will will draw a lot of people into studying Grant or learning about Grant. And I think, and I have very much hope that this book uh, that we're talking about tonight will sell a million copies and draw people into the study of the Civil War in a way that they hadn't been before. And in a way, as you point out, that they might not be by a 600-page monograph. Let me turn to a different uh, question. You mentioned, uh, we, we talked about Sherman and Clara Barton. 
were there any other figures that you wrote about here who you came away either liking more or less than when you started to write about them? Um, well, let's see. That's a good question. Um, the uh, Well, again, Sherman comes out so wildly mixed. I expected yes. to find Sherman as a much better field commander than he was um, and didn't expect to be so dazzled by his verbal brilliance as I was. Um, so that, that, that was a bit, a bit of that there. Um, the... Uh, I mean, I think I, I think in some level I was. I remember when I was starting this, I was in my mind anyway. I think you know, you think of this moment, the Overland campaign. I mean, has come down. You have Wilderness, Cold Harbor, Spotsylvania, Cold Harbor, and then on to Petersburg, and mm-hmm. and the kind of stalemate in the armored trenches of Petersburg and Richmond. And in my mind, I thought, you know, this is this moment where. It's kind of an anticlimax. The great Grant, uh, you know, there's 85,000 casualties going down there, and Grant doesn't win anything. And not only that, he, he seems to be living up to his reputation as a butcher, kind of feeding people into the chopper in order to keep his larger theory of the war going. And I remember thinking that we saw this kind of this difficult moment in the narrative where, well, what's going on? What's Grant doing? He's sitting there at City Point. He's not doing anything, right? He's what can he do? He, he there's you can you can you can send a frontal assault against the Petersburg trenches, and we all know what's going to happen. And and what really struck me, and this is w- w- the way I wrote about Grant, was that that's the moment when he actually becomes the his he fulfills his true brilliance. He takes over the war when he's absolutely mired in the mud of Petersburg and he can't do anything and he takes it over in his mind and I argue it's the most important, one of the most important moments in the war that he takes it. He breaks the stranglehold of the war, of the war department with Lincoln's assistance. He does all of these remarkable uh, kind of things that he, he, he directs events in such a way that, that, that he himself takes charge of the full war. He also, you know, helps his own cause out by writing, you know, dozens and dozens of these, you know, uh, letters that all get published. And he becomes this guy in, 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 and it's a really interesting moment, I think, for Grant. And that was a surprise for me because I was wondering, gee, how am I going to make that interesting? <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's, a, it's a stalemate. And it, and it continues to be. And not only, is it a st- not only is it a stalemate, but Lee outflanks him and, you know, sends... Uh, you know, early to Washington, it's like you know, it's not only a stalemate, but Lincoln, uh, but Lee figures out a way to to mess with Washington, even though there's a stalemate, which Grant can't do. So I, that was a a very pleasant surprise when I thought, you know, hey, I can I can write about Grant, and I the chapter is called "The Mind of Ulysses S. Grant," and it's how he took over the war in his mind, and how uh, I, and I honestly don't think everybody's read that, but you probably have <laughs> somewhere. But anyway, I haven't read it. And that was my take on Grant. And that, so there was there, there were little, kind of little, I guess, more smaller revelations uh, like that than uh, than bigger ones. Uh, I wish I could say that Jefferson well, well, Davis came out looking better than I thought, but unfortunately, it comes out look worse than I thought. So let, let me backtrack a bit. The comment about Grant: there were there were some views expressed in this book that I did think were you know interesting uh, ar- arguments. Um, when I say I didn't learn anything, I, I, again, I didn't not. I can't find a way to phrase it that doesn't sound as negative uh, as it may sound, and I don't mean it to. Uh, but but as as you said, it's not based on archival research. It doesn't bring new new evidence to light. Uh, 
but you do have have uh, your own take. You do make uh, right. that's your own arguments about things. Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's really what I'm offering, Jerry. And I, I I'm not offering right deep archival research. Right. Mm-hmm. Sure. The um, we have just a few minutes left. I often end with the Civil War time machine, where I ask who you'd like to meet with if you could go back. But I'm going to guess you would say Sherman because he is so interesting. Uh, so I'm going to ask you a, a variation of that question. If you could go back to the Civil War era for 30 minutes. Uh, where would you go? What would you want to be present at for 30 minutes? Wow, what a question. Lee and Jackson on the log, the chancellor. <laughs> so that's not even in this book, but that, that's, that's from the whole, from, I, you from know, all I, your knowledge. That's a great answer. One, one, that's from the gut. Yeah, I, no, I, go I, ahead I, with that. I'd like, to, I'd like to be sitting there, yes, that one. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I have There's a, so many uh, others that I can give you, but that would be the one that comes to mind. It, it's a great moment. Uh, I had an undergraduate student who had a ancestor who was was present there, who who uh, wrote about it, and uh, it, it 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 is a, a one of the dramatic moments in American history, uh, not just Civil War history, certainly. So, do you have another project uh, in process? Uh, I don't quite yet, although I'm. You know, it's I I, I seem to be. I'm very emotionally and intellectually invested in this period in American history, and I'm not sure I'm going to leave it, but I don't really exactly know what to do next. One of the things that I think that um, I think there's a great misunderstanding among people in general, um, I would include myself in that, uh, of what happened after the war. Mm-hmm. Um this word reconstruction doesn't mean anything. It, it means six, or rather, it means six or seven different things, all of which are contradictory. And redemption means more than there. It doesn't. These things are not widely known, and um, it, it's just so complicated, and it's been made so complicated, and it is in fact so complicated because when you look after the war, you got to look at every state. And Virginia is not the same as South Carolina. It's not the same as Louisiana or, or uh, Florida, and. Uh, uh, I would like to see if I could uh, try to penetrate that and, and come up with a an interesting narrative of what happened after the war. And I'm thinking probably continuing it right through, say, Plessy versus Ferguson, 1897, or, or the Wilmington riots, 1898. Not, I mean, not just eventually is called Reconstruction through 1877, but push beyond that, um, which will get into characters like Ida B. Wells and some really interesting W.E.B. Du Bois and people like that. Um, but I, I think... I would love to do it. And I would love to make it clear because I grew up. I'm a Yankee. I grew. I had. I have no, absolutely no idea what happened after the war. All I knew was like, wait, we being Yankees won the war, right? And wait a second, the South that I when I was growing up was all kind of separate and unequal and unfair. And what happened there? I mean, honestly, I, growing up, I didn't understand that. Uh, I think that that's a great topic and and one that does require more uh, exposure uh, to the public and and it would be a great topic for our next book. Unfortunately, uh, we are out of time tonight to talk about the current book, so I will have to end by uh, thanking you for being on the show. We've been talking to S.C. Gwynn, author of Hymns of the Republic, the story of the final year of the American Civil War. Sam, thanks so much for being on Civil War Talk Radio. Jerry, it's been it's been great talking to you. It's it's so great to talk to somebody who really is is deep in this field. It really is. It's great. Thank you.
Well, thank you. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.